Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast interview series where our guests discuss the book that changed them, hosted by Nadita, Matt and Ella. We asked what book shaped your outlook on the world. Now let's hear their answers. Today, we're in conversation with Dr. Jackie Phillips-Owen. Dr. Jacqueline Phillips-Owen is a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist at the South London and Maudsley. She graduated from University College London with an MBPhD from the Wellcome Trust Centre for Neuroimaging after completing a thesis on the cognitive neurobiology of semantic memory. She trained in clinical psychiatry at the Maudsley, where she also continued her academic work. Jackie is currently a member of the Academic Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at King's College London, a visiting clinician scientist at the Kemri Wellcome Trust collaboration in Kenya, and an editor of the mental health online platform MindEd. Her academic research explores the risk factors and neurobiology behind neurodevelopmental disorders in both low and high income countries as well as in decision-making in young people with ADHD, and finally in innovations for improving children's mental health in schools and colleges. Jackie is a mother of two children and a governor at a federation of schools in Lewisham. Her experience of seeing how schools struggle to support children with mental health difficulties against a background of dwindling resources and an increasing burden on non-student-facing activity led Jackie to start a series of conferences, Transforming Mental Health in Schools and Colleges, at the Royal Society of Medicine. This was in an effort to spur on public engagement and debate with these issues. The conferences are free to attend due to a generous grant from the Helen Hamlin Trust. Jackie, hello and welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. The book Jackie's chosen to talk about today is The Days of Abandonment by Alina Ferrante. The book opens tersely. One April afternoon, right after lunch, my husband announced that he wanted to leave me. What follows is the story of a woman's descent into a momentary state of psychic fury, which Olga, the protagonist, describes as an absence of sense after being abandoned by her adulterous husband and left with her two children. The book is a raw and powerful depiction of motherhood and marriage, of womanhood and solitude. Jackie, could you tell us why you chose Days of Abandonment? So actually, uh, the book was given to me first by my mother-in-law, who's a literary agent, who come across this author. And there'd been a lot of buzz in the literary world about this author, Elena Ferrante. Um, And she'd written this book and several others so that I've chosen this book today because I think it's it's most the most interesting book for a psychiatrist to read particularly a, a child psychiatrist out of the many books she's written but actually it's not my favorite my favorite uh, a quartet of novels uh, that starts with a book called My Brilliant Friend which I can highly recommend it sort of goes through the life course of two women and thinks about their friendships and their struggles and their relationships. So, and but I'll tell you the reason why I chose this particular book. It's because I think this particular author is extremely honest about some of the, the more difficult emotions that that women experience and don't want to talk about. Um, and I was reading when I was reading this book and several of her other books. I was I, I was um, and I still run with a club which is called Kent Athletic Club. And there's a group of us women only who, who run on weekends and we run for, for miles because we're training for various races. And while we're running, we chat. And after we ran out of the usual things to chat about, we started discussing books. So I got them all to read this book and we used to run and discuss it. And it was remarkable how, how relatable um, the women in my group who are all of different ages and different professions felt this was and how it sort of enabled all of us to discuss those difficult emotions that are thrown up in the book. That's really interesting. So you talked about the different women in your running club having felt like this book really resonated with them. And you talked about the difficult emotions that one can feel as a woman. Do you think sometimes these emotions are how we feel towards 
our family and towards our relationships? Is there a loss of role perhaps or a loss of individual identity when one becomes a mother or is it more in a romantic relationship sense? So there are, so motherhood, parenthood generally, is something that we are encouraged to only discuss in positive ways about how much we love it, um, how much we love our children, how much it's all fantastic. And, and we're all encouraged to, to, especially now in the age of social media, I suppose, show off how great we are at being parents and how perfect our families are. Um, and I think being a child psychiatrist and a mother myself, what there isn't really enough discussion about the, the difficult emotions. Um, that's, why, that's why I really enjoyed reading the book. And I think more discussion about those difficult emotions that as, as we all know as, as medical doctors, as psychiatrists, those emotions come out in clinic. Um, we, we quite often hear about them and that and I think there's a temptation to, to think that what we're hearing about in clinic is a sort of particular um, sliver of what's going on a particular focused part of the population maybe we're getting maybe we're a bit biased um, maybe we're hearing things that 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 aren't really applicable to the general to, to women in general or to parenthood or even fathers in general because we're hearing them from people whose children are ill but um, I think what this book brought home is that these these are emotions that a lot of people feel but they deny because it's not acceptable to feel the emotions and they're ashamed of them i think very much linked to that shame is the fact that elena ferrante isn't the real name of the author and you sort of wonder you have to consider whether she's able to speak like this because um she's hidden her identity it's almost a sense of taboo that you describe around these emotions that we can't uh, admit to them do you think if we were to admit to them it would be healthier in the context of illness I think it would it would be healthier if we could do what what some parents do in the context of so in in our clinics um, in in our services in child psychiatry we have groups for parents they're called parenting groups and some parents find them rather insulting in a way because they feel it's an implication that they can't parent but what they actually are is not let's let us teach you how to parent they're groups where parents can have exchanges about what they're finding difficult about having children um and and it's an incredibly tough job because everybody's out to judge you and we don't i don't think we really talk about that enough um and because mothers tend to spend more time with their children uh they're exposed to that judgment a lot more perhaps than fathers, although I think fathers as well, as, as we will see in the book, are judged. And you mentioned there that Alina Ferrante is a pseudonym for the author's real name. And to my knowledge, the author's real identity is still not known. Why do you think the author was so insistent in keeping themselves anonymous? I mean, my little theory is that she is telling a story which which either relates to her own life or to people who are close to her, because it feels as if she, the person who wrote these the words must have experienced those emotions firsthand or had somebody very close to them experiencing those emotions firsthand. And it, the original is, is written in Italian, uh, I think in, in um, Neapolitan dialect in parts as well. And... You, when you read the books, not just this particular one, but her other ones as well, you realise that Neapolitan society is is quite judgmental. You wonder whether that's not only where she's uh, what she's been writing about, but the society that she's embedded in, and whether it would be acceptable for, for people to hear to hear espouse the views that she's that she has, particularly talking about motherhood or talking about um, talking about men because she says some fairly um, unflattering things about, about men, but she also says very unflattering things about, about some of the main characters in, in the books who are women. So it's a bit of a warts and all account, but there's a lot of beauty in that warts and all account, which is the other thing that I find quite difficult to account for. You can talk about some very ugly things in a very beautiful way. And that's what I like about it. It's, it's, it's the humanity. 
I do think it's the uh, that physicality, though, that in a way uh, makes the book so readable and almost easy to inhabit. We talk about this common humanity, and I think some of that arises because Ferrante is talking about uh, human bodies in quite a stripped back way. It's not abstract, it's not just about thoughts and feelings, and for me, uh, without that, it wouldn't have quite have been the book that it is. You need the sort of disgusting elements of it, you yeah. need the unpleasant and the unacceptable bits of it to make it believable. But I think, mm. I suppose it's also important because we're doctors, so we deal in people's bodies. Mm. Uh, and sometimes we forget that bodies are to do certain things because, well, we're taught to forget, aren't we? So so when, when we look at people, bits of people's anatomy or genitalia or whatever, we're trying very hard to forget that that's because of you know, the purpose of that that bit is to have sex or you know you're just trying to erase it from your mind and I think the books the book's good for people like us it, it yeah. makes us remember that actually the body has a purpose and it's, it's not all about biology. I also think that psychiatrists can sometimes forget about the body a, a little bit as well perhaps yeah, more definitely. so we than should, other doctors. We should ask about the body we should, <laughs> we should have, keep the body in mind. You spoke about how raw really the writing is um and i definitely agree with you there some of the descriptions as you said can be so unpleasant uh they're quite repulsive they they can be almost visceral um and i think what i felt the author really tried to do is depict uh olga's state of mind so in what's described as her worst day which is when i think we can agree is when olga's really suffering the writing really changes, doesn't it? And you feel a pressure there and you feel Olga's pain in a way that really comes across in the writing. Do you think what the author is trying to do here is portray a kind of sense of mental disorder or is it, what do you think is trying to come across? I don't think that the author is trying to to paint a picture of of a psychiatric disorder, but I do think that there's a lot in it for for psychiatrists and but what it what it shows us what it what is valuable for us as as psychiatrists or people interested in in mental disorder is how a relatively commonly um, experienced life event which is the breakup of a marriage can push you to the boundaries of of doing something very extreme and taking extreme risks without appearing to have insight into the consequences of what you're doing. Um, can, in her case, it leads her to consider suicide, um, but in a very impulsive manner. So you're not quite sure if she really, if she really understands the impact that, that her actions are going to have. It also leads her to neglect her children. Um, and she loves her children, although at times she, she also doesn't like the person her, having children has has made her become but she loves her children yet she she's so distressed so anxious so disinter her personality is disintegrating to the point that she can't seem to care for them um and it's only and it's through luck that that um in the end uh, nothing disastrous happens but it feels as if it's very much a case of luck and it's something that we have so at the time I had a friend going through an experience that wasn't exactly like this but she's going through a difficult experience with a divorce Um, it's something that a lot of families who I see in in my service go through and you sort of get these accounts of it which is which are which are incomplete because people don't want to tell you that the true the true nature of what they're going through because it, it's hard it's to, it's socially unacceptable in many ways to a great extent and that comes across in the book where her friends are all avoiding her um because she's she answers the phone in a peevish manner and suddenly starts using lots of swear words and she's paranoid and suspicious so they all start avoiding her she's she becomes somebody that she wasn't before um also, I've had a little bit of personal experience because as a as a young person, as a teenager, my, my own parents split up and 
I was fortunate in that it didn't have such an impact on me because I was nearly leaving home anyway. But my younger sister, it had a really profound impact on her. And um, she, I think, felt probably felt that, that our mother was going through some of the things that are spoken about in this book, not all of them, but having some of those feelings. And it, it, it was useful. It gave me, it allowed me to... Um, to empathize in a way that I hadn't been able to before with, with my mother. So I think this kind of writing has, has a lot of value. Thank you for sharing that really personal experience. I think it's incredibly interesting that you say that almost sometimes we need a personal experience in such a way to be able to empathize with either your own relative your parent or your patient it's mm. also when uh, when we're we're practicing as doctors um regardless of of our specialty or our field i think it's important to understand that what your you only know what your patient chooses to tell you or what their social worker knows or what their teacher knows or or um what their partner or, or parent has decided to tell you, and often that's incomplete. Uh, they, they very rarely share, share the true extent of their suffering with you because they very rarely have words to express it. Yeah. I think there's also an acknowledgement that it's a privilege that we can know and that that information is shared with us as a real privilege and it's a real symbol of the trust that that patient is putting in you, isn't it, as the clinician, that they're prepared to share with you such personal information about their divorce or their relationship or their family but also the vulnerability of, of that person at the time because they may not be choosing to share with you it may just come to you through a variety of other different sources or or they may be sharing but 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 not in a in a voluntary sense simply because they haven't they're not able to to control what they're sharing I think that vulnerability really came across with Olga when she was left alone and when and there's, there's a section of the novel where she finds herself locked her, locked in with her family in her own apartment and she definitely appears very vulnerable there, doesn't she? It's a kind of that metaphor of being locked in and yet her neighbour later manages to unlock her in a very straightforward way and almost really is that a metaphor of being mentally locked in or being mentally stuck in a position of vulnerability or suffering yeah I think it was very much that it was really interesting wasn't it because there was a very long description of the lock being installed so she installed this extremely complicated lock in a in a very heavy door that could probably have guarded a bank or something and she's got such a resentment over the people installing this lock and the lock has all sorts of significance. Um, like she suspects the men installing the lock of, of making sort of sexual illusions about locks and keys. And so she's determined not to sort of understand how the lock works. And then, so she's locked herself in and then she can't get out. And then her neighbor comes and not, he doesn't unlock the door, but he says, have you tried turning the key? And she yeah. turns the key and the door unlocks. And it, and it's it's really interesting that that entire metaphor is always as if she needed to be shown the way to to do what she knew she could have done all along. And her neighbour there, um, who we described, Carano, he has a very interesting role in the book, I found. So he starts almost as a friend, but it feels at the beginning that Olga doesn't have much respect for him. Um, he becomes a lover, but who's surrounded with disgust and in their kind of brief sexual encounter, it's described in such a way that we're very much aware as the reader that Olga's repulsed by him. And then later in the book, she observes him in an orchestra in a completely different setting outside of their apartment building, which is where most of the book is set. And he's revealed in a whole new light. It's kind of, do you think he was a good character or a kind character to Olga what does he represent he's the Rorschach block of the book isn't she the Rorschach blotch of the book um 
because she projects all sorts of stuff onto him. So initially, he's an object of suspicion and he's suspected of poisoning dogs in the local neighborhood by her husband who, who hates him. Um, and she, she kind of apes her husband's views of him in a way because her, her husband doesn't like him because he's not enough of a man. He's not as manly as, as her husband. And then her husband leaves her and she sees this man who she views as quite pathetic coming in late at night, living this solitary life, bit of a paunch, middle-aged, nobody loves him. Um, and she sort of sees him as not enough of a man, yet he's, he's the man she chooses to um, kind of have a rebound relationship with, but she sort of forces herself on him in a way, I thought. And then she rather cruelly rejects him when he doesn't live up in his in his prowess to being to being a real man and it all seems to me quite sort of tied up with her perception of herself as a woman because she feels that she has to meet all these these benchmarks of womanhood like always always being clean and wearing makeup and smelling nice and talking in a very calm way and never using bad language and um, just being maternal and not having emotions so and that, that's her, that's, that's the sort of womanhood that she holds herself up to because the alternative is somebody who's out of control. So she's got to be in control. And then it all unravels. She realizes she's not that woman. She's not the woman who's always in control. She's not clean. She's not well-spoken. Um, it all kind of, it all disintegrates. And then she slowly, slowly brings herself back together and then she sees Carano playing this cello beautifully and he turns out to be a virtuoso cellist and he gets up on stage and he bows and the light reflects on his silver hair and she, he stands up and she realizes he has value. And it's not about some sort of ideal abstraction of what, what a man should be. It's, it's about the fact that he's an individual and he needs to be treated with humanity just as she does. Um, and I think, yeah, so that's that was my reading of it, that she starts, she stops applying these ridiculous standards to herself and that allows her to love Karano. I think he also doesn't view her as much of a sexual object as she maybe thinks all men do. In some ways, he displays more kindness to her than any other man in the book, particularly compared to her husband. And it's almost as if she has to relearn what human kindness can feel like. You know, he offers tokens of friendship. and Yes, yeah, it's interesting because on, on your first reading of the book, it seems rather man-hating. Yeah. Uh, just simply because the husband is, is, is such a, in her, because we're all only seeing it through, through her eyes. We're only seeing him through her eyes. And he seems like such a devious, irresponsible sort of, unpleasant person and he, he gets revealed as being more and more unpleasant as the book progresses and then Karano comes in and he sort of grows on you doesn't he and towards the end you realize that there is an alternative it isn't all it isn't about all men being terrible it's just the man she happens to have chosen is not very nice but there's there is an alternative if she's willing to take it it's funny because Mario the husband he states his reason of leaving the marriage and leaving Olga and his children is because he's got an abandoned sense of self. What's interesting is Olga's sense of self really changes throughout the book, doesn't it? And she abandons it, as you described, when she feels the need to kind of remove the shackles of control and remove the shackles of the way she feels about her appearance and the way she speaks. But then she does regain it. She regains that sense of control. It's almost as if she needs that control to operate in society again, would you say? Or Yes, so it's it's an interesting one because when she regains the control, you feel as if it doesn't make her entirely happy. Um, she's having to do it because she knows it's necessary. She knows she has duties. But it's also talking to the compromises that we must make in life when when we have families uh, we can't lose control we if we're going to be good enough parents we we have to 
we have to provide stability and that's what she tries to do and it's it feels like it feels like less of a compromise though when she's regained that control than it did initially when she was apparently happily married she's yeah. regained the control she sort of understands the what what the limitations are to her freedom and she's accepted those limitations yeah she certainly accepts it with more kind of contentment doesn't she at, towards the end of the book and perhaps it's about the understanding that okay it doesn't make her entirely happy but maybe but is that the most important thing in life what role do you think her children play in helping her come back to either a state of reality or a state of control or almost rescuing her from that worst day well you get the you get the broad sense that if she didn't have children something a lot worse would have happened and that her children in a way saved her because she had to return to something that resembled normal behavior um when she's so in, in her worst day her son becomes very ill with a fever and her daughter's having to look after him and then the dog is poisoned and the dog is <laughs> the dog is dying on the floor of the living room and they get locked in the house and the phone's cut off and it's just it feels like they're inside it's all gone wrong <laughs> yeah it's all gone wrong it's like they're inside an escape room or something and she's having to try and work her way out and she just can't think she just can't think you know all the thoughts are buzzing yeah. around her head and her grip on reality is sliding away and she 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 tells her daughter to stab her with a paper knife when she looks as if she's drifting and so her daughter's sitting there it's a situation which sounds ridiculous but i can actually i can actually imagine happening um i can imagine some some of some of the mothers i've seen in clinic for example who who have so much to deal with um in situations where they're relying on their children to to bring them back because they just have so much so much to manage uh so she's getting her daughter to just i think there's this there's this scene where she's leaning over a balcony trying to get her neighbor to come up and open the door and she's leaning so far over the balcony that she could have fallen off and she, the only reason she doesn't is because her daughter stabs her in the leg and leaves a wound so clearly the children there are her anchors and they're very young children they're something like seven and nine I think um and what does it say I suppose it speaks to the importance of the family and as much as family life is difficult and it it can be limiting in some ways and it can can alter your identity in other ways or change change your priorities or change your dreams it's also very stabilizing and can can be something that rescues you from your, from yourself because it's more important than just yourself so jackie you described her children being her anchor and earlier you mentioned her being on the boundaries of mental illness and being fortunate not to cross that boundary what do you think happens in those who are less fortunate i think this is where the empathy that you feel for her in the book is important because i think that too often we see those who are unlucky maybe not catastrophically unlucky since we probably wouldn't see those people but we might see them in A&E um or we might we might see them as patients not just in a psychiatric clinic but but um gp clinic um and perhaps we're not empathic enough we we we're, we can be uh more judgmental perhaps because we as psychiatrists as doctors we're taught we're taught to prioritize the needs of the most vulnerable and the most vulnerable are usually children so we'll prioritize the needs of those children over perhaps their parents uh, when in fact perhaps we need to change our change our, our ways a little bit and think about what drove the parent into that situation that they now are neglecting their child because it's it's not it's not malice often the people we see really love their children they're just not managing and they they're judged by us they're judged by social care and sometimes they're in situations where 
they have got children who, through no fault of their own, are incredibly difficult to look after. It's important to retain that empathy rather than thinking of, of those parents as poor parents. It's lovely to hear your compassion for parents with children with mental health difficulties. This brings me to ask you about your own choice to specialise in child and adolescent psychiatry and what drove you to this profession? Well, I started out in paediatrics. I thought I was going to, I thought I was going to go into infectious diseases in paediatrics. And I spent some time working in Kenya at the Kenya Medical Research Institute, seeing children with epilepsy. And I was very keen to, to um, push forward in that work. And the person who I was working with is called Charles Newson. He's a, he's a professor of pediatric neurology. He practices between Oxford and Kenya. He actually advised me not, not to be a pediatrician because he felt that the illnesses or the physical illnesses were not the main concern of the parents. The main concern was the behavior being being exhibited by the child who had epilepsy or who had diabetes or and there was and as pediatricians he felt that the specialty struggled to to manage those issues he also felt that they they were the more interesting issues and it was really interesting because it, this was not in in london this was in um, rural kenya where uh, children were coming in with problems which looked an awful lot like ADHD. In fact, that, that's what they were, because ADHD is very common in, in epilepsy. And we've got this perception. Well, we don't have this perception, but there is this perception um, that ADHD is, is a disorder that's that's induced by society because we're not allowing children enough freedom and we're, we're tying them to their desks and so forth. But this was rural Kenya where... There's a lot of problems, but space isn't one of them, and lack of exercise isn't one of them. And um, it was very interesting that this was a this was a problem that was universal. That that a family who had a sort of homestead on a on a on a small holding and had to farm all of their own produce was struggling just as much as a, as a family living in a council flat in central London with no outside space. Because how do you how do you work a subsistence farm if if your child is running off and getting into all sorts of danger and not managing? It's it's just as difficult for, for them as it is for anyone who lives in a city. Do you think we take a, uh, too much of an urbanized or perhaps westernized view to child and adolescent? psychiatry and conditions like ADHD opposite I think sometimes we we um we check ourselves too much and we we try and we try not to take an urbanized westernized view because we we think that people who live in different circumstances must be so very different that that even their minds must be different but in fact no very much They're the, the same, same. <laughs> they have the same problems it might be a different context but the problem is very similar what would you say child and adolescent psychiatry has surprised you with the most? So I suppose because I had a very academic outlook from the very start, I did a PhD as, as a medical student um, and then went back into medicine to finish off my clinical training. So I had, I had a sort of try to carve nature at its joints type approach um, and for me, it was all about finding finding the parts of the brain responsible for this and that, um, or finding the psychological test that would differentiate between this disorder and that disorder. Um, and I think once I became a consultant, and as a consultant, you're forced to see things more holistically because you're seeing you're seeing children and families over years rather than over a short period of time where you're training. Um, and it surprised me how little diagnosis mattered. And diagnosis was a sort of helpful framework for for um, trying to understand a child, but it didn't always help because it wasn't always appropriate. It didn't always describe everything. 
uh, sometimes it was a helpful framework for deciding what kind of therapy or, or whether a child needed medication to help them manage a particular aspect of what they were going through. But the, the label itself didn't really matter as much as I thought it did. Do you think we place too much importance in modern medicine on the diagnoses and the label they provide? I don't think it's just modern med. I don't think it's modern medicine. I think it's society. For example, a lot of parents are seeking diagnoses because they can't get help for their children. Because if, if you want an education healthcare plan, um, which allows your child to get support in school one-to-one because they're having difficulty reading or having difficulty sitting in class or because they've got autism and they're very rigid and things need to go in a particular way or else they become very anxious, then you need you need the rubber stamp of a diagnosis. And when in fact, it shouldn't be that way. It should be, it should be relatively easy to go into a classroom and see there's a child who's struggling, maybe they need a bit of extra help. Why do they need a certificate from a doctor to allow them to access help? Same, same with, um, with, with funds. So parents need diagnosis, diagnoses to access benefits. Uh, and they need the benefits often because like, like the sharecroppers in Kenya who are working their own land to generate food to eat, um, they're, they're not able to look after their children and work at the same time. So anyone in central London who's got a job uh, is in the same position as, as that farming family in Kenya who who they have to work to survive. It's the same, the same concern, different setting. Um, what, what do you do if you can't work to survive? Well, the solution in um, Ethiopia, I've worked in Ethiopia as well, and, and to some extent in Kenya too, was sometimes you had to tie your child to a tree because otherwise they were going to go somewhere and get, get into danger. Um, so it was a, a choice between not being able to grow your food and having to do something a bit abusive like tie your child to a tree. Um, whereas here, you, there is the help, but it's, it's the time to pursue that help. It's having to be an advocate for, for your child um, and chase it all through the courts if you can, which a lot of parents can't do because they don't know how. It's, it's incredibly difficult. For parents and it just seems rather sad and I know there are reasons for it but it seems rather sad that we can't do a functional assessment of, of where a child is and what kind of help they need and, and we have to have a diagnosis. It's interesting you mentioned the failures a diagnostic label brings particularly if we take a snapshot of Olga's worst day we could give her several diagnoses and raise several safeguarding concerns. But Olga eventually achieves this emotional catharsis at the end of the book, and we spoke about her being in a place of greater contentment. She faces the darkest as the darkest aspect, and comes through it as a person with a better sense of her identity. And as psychiatrists, I wonder how much we need to reconcile with the darkest aspects of our psyche to meaningfully engage with our patients. Yeah, well, I, I think that's that's a good question. I suppose it harkens back to what we were talking about before. Would she have needed to have that meltdown if she had someone to confide in about her her worries about losing her identity, not being a writer anymore? She mentions at the beginning that she she wrote a book but hadn't written nothing since. Um, if she hadn't been so isolated, but she it's a sort of imposed self-isolation, isn't it? She's trying to meet an ideal which is very difficult to meet. So she she's trying to disguise her, her aspects of her true nature from other people because she wants them to feel that she is this ideal. If we could have a more honest conversation about what it's actually like to be a parent without being accused of, of um, hating men or hating our children or hating ourselves, then um, perhaps it, it could prevent some of that happening. Perhaps if people aren't able or willing to share their thoughts and feelings or don't have an opportunity to hear it from other people. I mean, this is a podcast about books and reading and psychiatry. 
do you think that the process of reading uh, offers a means or a process of inhabiting other people's minds and bodies and if it does does doing does, does the process of reading make us better psychiatrists I think it does help doesn't it I mean those experiences which are so common which everybody lies about so <laughs> they lie about it because it's because you can't have really it's not really dinner table discussion is it um having somebody write about about those experiences in a way that that is is relatable honest she's not glossing over glossing anything over really she's even thinking about she's even fantasizing about her husband and his new lover and she doesn't gloss over that it does it gives you it gives you a window into somebody else's mind it makes you realize that perhaps some of the some of the horrible thoughts or horrible images that you've had in your own mind um are not because you're a reprehensible reprehensible terrible person but simply this is just part of what what it means to be human One of the things that actually uh, really struck me about the book was that for almost every step of the way, I felt a, pretty much like I was on Olga's side, almost like I was kind of colluding with her version of events. I could almost see the connections between her thoughts and between her thoughts and her behaviour. But actually, on speaking to you guys afterwards, it became clear that most of what she did was actually pretty objectively weird. <laughs> um, but but it did make me think that in the mind of someone who is sort of teetering on the edge of uh, between sanity and insanity, that perhaps there is some sense there that we as clinicians can try to make or access. And that perhaps maybe literature is one of the best ways of um, cultivating this skill. She does do some very strange things, doesn't she? It's she does. almost like she, she, she almost regresses into becoming an animal or a very young child at various points of the book without going into too much detail and spoiling it. Um, Which we've later had to reassure Matt isn't so normal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you had to be reassured, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think your original question is about does it make us better psychiatrists? Mm. Well, it's got to really. I mean, it makes us better psychiatrists, I think, every time somebody tells us their narrative, every time someone tells us their story, as, as difficult as some of those stories are to hear. But that's that's why it's such an amazing job, because you, you see the world through so many other people's eyes. And to be a psychiatrist, you've got to like stories, you've got to like narratives, you've got to like stepping into somebody else's shoes. Again, that can make it rather a difficult job because you suffer with them. Picking up on what you said there about stepping into someone's shoes and seeing the world from your patient's perspective, I wondered if you ever feel a sense of powerlessness as a camp psychiatrist, when you feel you can't ultimately change a child's whole situation and you kind of have to accept the margins of what you can do and what's in your capacity to change. Would you say you've experienced this as a frustration in your work? So the first thing that we all learn when we get our medical degrees and we step into that district general hospital for the first time is that we're not God. And I think that in psychiatry, it's um, brought home in, in an even more concrete manner. That firstly, you're not, you're not able to see, you're only able to see certain parts of the jigsaw puzzle. You're not going to hear all of it. And what you hear might be very disturbing, um, but you're not going to get all of it. Therefore, you can't change it because you don't know what all of the factors are. So you can't necessarily change a child's life. But what you can do is change the margins. And sometimes that that kind of creates an effect uh, which which makes change happen throughout that child's life. So you, I think you've, as a psychiatrist, you've got to be humble, especially as a child psychiatrist, and realise that as much as you want to, to be the hero and rescue the child from whatever, their, whatever situation they're in, you're not able to do that. Uh, but there are many things that you can do. Some of them might appear to be quite sort of humble um, or inadequate. Uh, for example, referring them to 
a mentorship service uh, it's not something that, that it's not an intervention that you've got any any sort of personal control over but but that can that can be a really important step for a child who's very isolated uh, in gaining confidence and being able to cope with life sometimes it's it's treating their anxiety um which doesn't change the situation that they may be in but it makes that situation that little bit more tolerable and it's it creates a domino effect which can which might result in things being a bit better for that child and for that family so it's it's a subtle thing really it, it's not like being an orthopedic surgeon and putting somebody's leg back together and you're not always going to see the result because when they're 18 they leave you and move on but I've had some very pr profound and affecting experiences with, with some of the young people I've seen who have who seem to have really valued the, the clinical encounter and being listened to and having the feeling that somebody cares what's going to happen to them. So I'd, I'd, I have to say I wouldn't trade this job in for anything, even though at times it can be extremely frustrating and and make you feel very burnt out. It's wonderful to hear you speak so passionately about your job. And it seems you've been able to achieve something Olga struggled to, holding on to your sense of identity as Jackie, as a psychiatrist and as a mother and a wife. What's helped you do this? It might all look calm on the surface, but um, there's been a lot of a lot of um, pedaling underwater. I think it's it's not really it's not really quite the way you put it, Nadita. In the sense that I haven't always maintained this this serene um, sureness in my own identity. It, it's um, I think any any parent would tell you that that um, it's very up and down, and certainly being a parent at the beginning for both for both fathers and mothers or mothers and mothers is. It, is just challenging in ways that you never ever thought it was going to be I mean often doctors approach it thinking about how they're on call and of course I can manage the steepest nights because I'm just used to that sort of thing and I'm a professional and I can juggle all sorts of things but of course being a parent is is just it involves a lot of emotions and a lot of a lot of facing your own demons which which um, you can't really schedule into your diary um, and it does involve a loss and a rebuilding of identity. And I think that's happened to me as it's happened to most other parents I've spoken to, but particularly mothers. Uh, and the loss of identity is probably down to a sense of powerlessness because when you're a parent with very young children, you're not only at the, at the mercy of their needs, but you can't stand up for yourself in perhaps the way that you used to, either because you don't want to have that particular argument in front of your children or you don't want to, you don't want to kind of have that experience at work because it might have an impact on your family. So you're constantly thinking about try cushioning your family and trying to, trying to um, make things okay for your family um, and your children. And, um, but the funny thing is that there is a sort of gain of a regain of identity as, as first of all as children grow but also that you can sometimes get this interesting clash between the needs of your children or your family and your own needs which you wouldn't stand up for before because you've you've decided to relegate them into the background because of other people's needs and sometimes those two things come together and you can be in a situation where you wouldn't fight for yourself but you would fight for for your children, your family, or or um, something that kind of almost represents them. So in my case, I suppose it's it's cams and the, the kids who I see in cams. And I've been in situations where I I would like five ten years ago I I wouldn't have been able to be as as assertive as I am now because I, I would have thought that that's something that's a bit selfish to do because it shouldn't all be about me. I should, I should be sort of 
I should be making sacrifices because I think particularly women are taught that we should be making sacrifices. However, five and five or 10 years later, I'm a consultant and um, I now feel pretty ferocious about being assertive. And the reason for that is not just because of my own children, but because I'm meant, meant to be advocating for all these other children. And if somebody uh, does something which means I can't perform my job as well as I'd like to, then that makes me that makes me really want to go out and go out and sort it out in a way that I never that I never really managed to do before. So it's so it's had the cumulative effect of making me far more assertive than I ever used to be. In fact, at times I have to rein myself in because I think I scare people. I think it's interesting that the uh, quality of being assertive is seen as a negative thing in a woman commonly rather and in a man it's seen as more positive isn't it and you can the way you talked about being assertive being perhaps seen as selfish in a negative light is something I think women have to really grapple with when actually perhaps they're acting in their own best interests which isn't a bad thing at all or acting in the best interests of their children or their patients as you said have you found it difficult to be assertive as a woman I think assertiveness has been a discovery for me, and I think perhaps it's the same for a lot of a lot of women because we are, I think, culturally expected, and not just in this culture, to be a bit more self-sacrificing and and to think of the other's needs before our own, in in a way that maybe um, boys are less encouraged to do. Um, it it it's a sort of I think you have to reach the realization that, it, that if you're going to fight for other people, you've got to fight for yourself because if you're not in a good place then you're certainly not going to be able to look after other people. Um, and that's a realisation that has to be reached over time, and, but which perhaps we should, as, as um, women in professional positions and men in professional positions, encourage uh, schools and young people to think about a little bit earlier on. It isn't selfish to think about your own needs, especially if you're trying to be a fully functioning member of society who, whose needs involve um, performing important tasks like being a lawyer, teacher, doctor, parent. Thinking about that conflict between satisfying your own needs and meeting the needs of others, it's arguably a more pressing dilemma for women, and the book references another iconic female character, Anna Karenina. Her and Olga find themselves in similar predicaments, despite Anna being the one who betrayed her husband. Are they united in their tragic experiences because they're women? It's interesting talking about Anna Karenina, isn't it? Because because you you could say that what she's done is look after her own needs, but but make a sort of ration and a rash decision in 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 balancing her needs with with those of those expectations of society. Um, and it's it's also interesting that they end up in the same position of being ostracised by their by their friends and family. It sort of makes me think of that that other character, that imaginary character in the book, the, the Poverella, who um, who's also who's left by her husband, and can't, just can't cope. She's the sort of spectre over the whole thing, isn't she? So there's Anna Karenina, who of course commits suicide, and then there's the Pover, the Poverella, who also who commits suicide too in a different way, and um, it just it does feel rather hopeless that aspect of the book that it feels as if there's no there's no correct move you can make if if you're left if you're left by a man and you're left in this situation there's no there's no particularly there's no path that you can go down that's the right path you're sort of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't but i i suppose that's only if what she does at the end is she sort of frees her mind doesn't she 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 decides that she's not going to conform to those ideals anymore and she's not going to choose a man who's supposed to be who's manly and that's what that's what rescues her, I suppose. So uh, Anna Karenina is a book, uh, of course, famously written by Leo Tolstoy, who is, of course, a, a man. Uh, and we're guessing, although we're not sure, that uh, Ferrante is a woman. Uh, do you think in any way that Ferrante is opening up a dialogue with Tolstoy and Anna Karenina? I mean, in, in Tolstoy's book, uh, Anna is unable to reconcile her distress... And she, of course, ends up throwing herself, no spoilers here, throwing herself in front of a train. Um, in our book, Olga is distressed, uh, but she is eventually able to find her way out. So, of course, there's that key essential difference there. Yeah, I suppose it speaks to the, the change. It speaks to the age in which those books were written, because 
how is she able to find a way out? She doesn't do it all by herself, does she? Interestingly, as much as this book makes, makes us hate men, it's a man who helps to find the way out. So, and it's a man who very gently, in a very, very non-alpha male way, tells her that she can unlock the door. How different do you think the story would be if it was told from Olga's husband's perspective? So that's the reason why that's such an interesting question is because there's there's a lot of uh, speculation about who Elena Ferrante is. And one of the possible um, candidates is uh, the wife of another author called Domenico Stannone, who wrote a, a book which was almost a counterpoint to uh, this particular book, Days of Abandonment, and it was called Ties. And it was essentially the story of, of a, a marriage breaking up, told entirely from the point of view of the man. And it had the same raw emotional honesty of Elena Ferranti's work, uh, but entirely from the point of view of, of, of this, this husband who feels that he is losing his identity and that he he has to leave his wife and his children and do some do some things that that are not particularly things that he should be proud of including chasing a much a much younger woman um and much in the, much in the style of ferrante you have a, a very unfiltered view into his mind and all these um, all, all the sort of unpleasant thoughts that he's thinking and all the it's not just unpleasant it's it, his weakness i suppose and and his um his fear of 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 commitment and the way he's willing to 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 do something that that's harmful to his children and again it's it's one of these situations which which the person next door could be experiencing or your best friend might have experienced it's a very relatable situation um and so he's written all about this in, in this book ties and at the end the husband comes back with his tail between his legs and 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 is um taken back by his wife who will never let him forget the damage he has done but then it emerges you get a bit more insight into why he left in the first place and why his identity was was so the foundations of his identity was so shaky in the first place you realize that that actually he's very controlled his wife controls his eating she controls his what he wears she's quite vindictive um and it's it's the subtlety with with which that comes out because he doesn't even seem to have insight into into it himself you you end up at the end of the book with with a lot of um a lot of concern and compassion for the husband who's who's is living out the rest of his days with with a woman who's never going to let him forget that he sinned um and it's, so it's just a very interesting counterpoint and perhaps answers your question about the point of view of the man thank you for recommending uh, dis and discussing that book it's interesting to hear the breakdown of a relationship from a different perspective would you recommend any other books that you'd like our listeners to engage with, perhaps to inspire them to pursue psychiatry or just books that you found particularly insightful or just an enjoyable read? Yes, I think, again, the essential thing to remember about this, this, this series of books is it just it gives a, a whole it, it, it tries to give a whole picture. She's even written Elena Ferrante has even written more recently a book called The Lying Lives of Adults, which tells tells the story of a divorce from the perspective of a teenage girl and things like just just little details like watching uh, watching her parents sitting with friends at the kitchen table and realizing that the father of her friend is is rubbing her mother's foot under the kitchen table it's all from the perspective of a seven-year-old which because it goes through from when she was around seven on up to when she was around 16 uh, and and a seven-year-old child's understanding of of an adult relationship and what it all means is it's it's it is it feels very much like a sort of study of of um, family relationships that I don't think is is matched in any, any other series of books that I've read. You mentioned this book was particularly interesting for child and adolescent psychiatrists to read. 
Is that one of the reasons you chose it? It is, it, yeah, it it is certainly, but it's also interesting from a personal point of view as well. I think I mentioned earlier that that my parents split up, and it it brought back memories of of just watching little details of of their relationship coming apart over several years, and realizing afterwards that oh, that's what that meant. This book is rooted in collapse and reclaiming of identity. You were born in Tanzania and spent your childhood across Nepal, the USA and the UK. How much did these experiences shape your sense of identity? So, interestingly, it didn't shape my sense of identity um, as much as it allowed my identity to be quite fluid. Um, So I went back to spend some time in in Nepal as as a 19-year-old. And um, one thing I really liked about the time that I spent there was how everybody thought I looked Nepali. I absolutely loved it. Um, and I remember this sort of grandmother going, coming up to me and pinching my cheeks and saying, you look like you're from the Chetri tribe. You look Chetri. And, <laughs> and I've had similar experiences in Morocco uh, where I was, I remember going to buy a, a carpet in a market and the, carpet, the man selling the carpet started calling me Fatima Berber because he said I looked like a Berber. <laughs> so I've had this experience, of, which I love, of going around the world and, and everybody thinking that I look like I come from their country. Uh, but the irony is that um, in Tanzania, where, which is where my mother's from, when I go and visit family, uh, I... I'm not recognized as being Tanzanian. So, so um, because I'm, I'm a mix of um, white British and, and Tanzanian. And uh, in fact, people call me an Mzungu, which in Swahili means white traveler. Um, and it's, it is quite a sort of identity shock to be thought of in virtually every country, every other country in the world as, as um, not white, but to go back to, to part of a country that's part of my cultural heritage and be thought of as white, which is <laughs> that's quite interesting. And then when we moved to the USA, I was 11 years old. And first of all, it was, it was a, in itself a culture shock because we were living in Washington, DC. And at the time, it was still quite a segregated city um, in that the east part of the city was was black and the west the northwest was was white and we lived in the northwest and my my mother is tanzanian as i've said and my father is white and they would walk down the street holding hands and people would turn around and stare at them. And that was not an experience I'd ever had in London, where even in, in the 80s, London was a very cosmopolitan place and you didn't look twice if, if you saw two people of, of different um, races or ethnicities walking together. At least I, I never remember doing that and I never remember thinking it was anything unusual. But it clearly was extremely unusual in, in America at that time. And the other thing that that was interesting and took me aback a bit was was suddenly I, I was my racial identity became black because either you were black or you were white in America at that time. And I had never really thought about what what my racial racial identity was. I'd never really had to other than other than be welcomed in by by um, people in different countries because I look like I could vaguely be from there. I'd never really had to have an identity. Um, and it, it was it, it really, it was quite an unbalancing experience, in fact. And later on, as an adult, I was reading the book Americana by Ch- Chimananda Ngozi Adeiche, which is a book I'd highly recommend. And she writes, she's coming from Nigeria and she's going to uh, America because she's going to university. She's, she's got a scholarship place at an American university. And she comes from a uh, sort of middle, upper middle class Nigerian family. And she arrives in America and she's struck by, 
she's struck because she's told that she's black and she's never thought of herself as anything other than a person <laughs> because she lives in a in a majority black country so it was kind of irrelevant whether or not she was black white or whatever so and it did feel a little bit like that actually that um suddenly my identity was i was being told what my identity is uh and i'd never had to really give it much thought before i said yes so in answer to your question how did it shape my identity it, it oh. made me realize that i needed to declare what side i was on and that continues to this day i think particularly now we're, we're all we're all in a, a social and cultural situation right now where everybody's having to select a side um and state their identity but there are people like me who i feel i feel as if I'm equally Tanzanian, equally British. Uh, one of my grandfathers is Greek. So whenever I meet Greek people and they comment on my mother's maiden name, uh, I say, yes, yes, I've got Greek heritage. Uh, so <laughs> I'm quite happy being, being all things to all people. Uh, and I, I, I do find it difficult having to decide which side I'm on. There's something very beautiful in that position you get to hold as a world citizen. It reminds us that there are many experiences that are universal to us as humans. And in reading the book, we are also reminded of that. I think for anyone who has ever been dumped, there's reconciliation in reading Olga's experiences and her vengeance really resonates. Yes. And you can also feel relief that you're not the only that you're not the only one who had that that sort of depth and violence of feeling that it's entirely normal. If you had not read this book, how different do you think your outlook on the world would be? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Adita. I think this book, for me, was was quite important because it allowed me to to come to terms with some of my own emotions about being a parent and to embrace them and accept them and accept that they weren't bad or evil. It was just part of part of the experience and part of the journey. So it was it was a book that that I found quite comforting. So that leads me to thank Dr. Jackie Phillips Owen for discussing her book, The Days of Abandonment by Elena Ferrante. Thank you for listening and I hope you can join us next time for the next episode of Between the Lines. <laughs>